Uh, let me pray one more time, and we will get back into this, okay? Uh, Chris, this thing is going to distract me, so I'm just going to close it, and it's still going, right? Okay, well, let's pray one more time, you guys, and we shall begin, okay? Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy today. Thank you, uh, Lord, for the fact that uh, you have so bountifully blessed every family here in this church. And indeed, Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. And above all, Lord, we are thankful for the riches of your grace. We're thankful for the glory and the honor uh, that has been bestowed upon us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would magnify him to us now, Lord, and help us to see how glorious uh, it is that we have union with Christ. Father, show us all the great privileges and benefits of being in union with your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's see here. Actually chasing something else. That's 16... Ephesians chapter 2, um, let's see here, speaking to the interesting, mm, interesting, that's very interesting, sorry, I'm looking at something else last second out of Ephesians 4, going back to Zechariah, so that's why it took me a little time to correlate that, okay, so, uh, where we left off uh, last week is, we talked about what was the the basis or what was the foundation of our of practical theology uh, in the book of Ephesians, and we talked about union with Christ. Remember, uh, we talked about union with Christ in two ways. Number one, we talked about our union with Christ being taught, uh, and that is where the Apostle Paul, verses three all the way to verse 14 in chapter 1 talks about our union with Christ there and then we talked about union with Christ being treasured and that's chapter uh chapter 2 beginning in verse um where, where is that at actually chapter 1 verse 15 all the way down towards the end of the chapter we talked about treasuring union with Christ and that's where Paul uh prays for us that that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened that is his prayer for the church of Ephesus, the, the saints there. And so now I want to talk about the second thing that our, our, that practical theology is basically based on. And that is the concept of covenant participation. Now where do I get this idea that this is a covenantal issue? Is that just something Pastor Emilio likes to talk about? You know, the covenantal this and the covenantal that? Well, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. I think that's where we can really begin. And so I'm going to make the case that in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 to 13, what we find is that in fact we are alienated from this. So we are alienated from participating in God's covenant promises. That's big. And so what I'm saying is that because of our union with Christ, our alienation is actually what has been reversed. So let's look at verse 11. It says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, that's all of us, right, um, uh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. So uncircumcision is a reference to the Gentiles. Circumcision is a reference to the Jews. 
which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Now, verse 11 just needs a little bit of explanation, right? The whole concept of circumcised, uncircumcised. If you were an uncircumcised Gentile, uh, that carried a very pejorative idea, right? To a Jew who was in covenant with God, you were uh, an unclean, profane dog. <laughs> That's the way you were viewed because you were outside of the covenant. You were outside of the power of God to cleanse you through the institutions of Israel, through the sacrifices and through all the, by the observance of all the rituals and the ceremonies of, of Israel. So you were, you were profane. You were unclean. Um, and, and this is what it's saying is that remember at that time you were, now this is real interesting, right? Now look at, look at the, this is not just, this is not Paul, uh, this is not Paul, uh, really engaging in sort of, you know, he's, he's anachronism, which means he got things out of order. Look at what he starts with, right? Remember at that time you were what? You were separate from Christ, number one, <laughs> right? And you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. What is the commonwealth of Israel? Well, the commonwealth of Israel is just you were excluded from being a citizen. Uh, you were not, you didn't have citizenship uh, in the nation. So you were excluded from that. Uh, so you weren't even part of the theocracy, right? And then it says, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, notice that really interesting phrase there. The covenants, plural, of promise, singular. You see that? So what does that tell you? That the covenants of God are somehow in some way facilitating the overarching uh, promise of God. And what promise do you think that's referring to? That's really interesting, right? Uh, I don't know that I'm going to give you the final word on this today, but uh, I just think that's really interesting how I think for us as at least for me, in covenant theology, this is a really, really important text. Uh, Reformed theology, this is one of the most foundational texts to all of Reformed theology. Why? Because it stresses the unity of the diversity of God's word. What do I mean by that? Well, if you think about all the covenants, plural, right? you think of what are the covenants that, that, that we see in Scripture? Well, you have... Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Abrahamic, you have New Covenant, uh, the, or, or new, new Covenant, which is also called the Everlasting Covenant, like in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, calls it the Everlasting Covenant, right? You have all these covenant administrations, but guess what? They all have some organic connection to the great redemptive promise of God. Isn't that amazing, right? So this is a really, Really interesting verse here that shows you this organic connection of God's overarching promise that spans all the covenants of God. That's amazing. It's incredible because interwoven through all of them is this. Okay, I don't want to get too deep into that because you know how crazy I get and I just keep going. So we're supposed to be showing how that practical theology, when the Bible tells you something as practical as how to be a good employee, right? Get more practical than that. How to raise your kids biblically. Does it get more practical than that? How to honor God with your finances. What I'm saying is that the foundation upon which those exhortations are built, 
Number one, union with Christ. We saw that already. Number two, covenant participation. Um, let's finish reading that because I, I didn't even finish reading that. It says, remember that you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. The strain, you were strangers. That's the point, by the way. Separate, excluded, strangers to the covenants of promise. Watch this now. What's the result of that? What does that result in? No hope without God. Does it get any worse than that? Watch this. In the world. So these are compounding pejoratives, right? They're getting worse. Number one, you are broken off from uh, any interest in God's saving activity in, in humanity because you are not in, um, even in the most basic to the most fundamental level, you are not in God's covenant people. Now, somebody have... Somebody look up for us Psalm 147. Um, can you do it, Chris? Psalm 147, the last two verses. I think it's 19 and 20, but just, just read that just to get kind of an Old Testament. You've heard me cite this over and over. Psalm 147, the last two verses. But notice it just gets worse and worse for us, right? If we, when we were outside, um, we were in this state, uh, just had a, uh, conversation regarding hyper calvinism uh and part of that the idea being uh that that i was talking about with someone was the concept of eternal justification how many of you heard that before eternal justification that's part of hyper calvinism what the reformers fought against people like spurgeon and others they fought against this notion that christians because of their union with christ are eternally justified that's very tricky there because what you're saying is that we have always been in a in a right standing with God. See what I'm saying? Whereas the Bible seems to teach very clearly that no, what happens at conversion is actually a a, a transfer of status. You you go from one state to the next. You go from a state of condemnation to a state of salvation. You go from a state of guilt and condemnation to a state of justification, right? All of that. Um, but, uh, but none of that really is even accessible to us. I want, I want you to read that verse for us. Yeah. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. Mm-hmm. He has not built thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Wow. I mean, that's a heavy verse, right? Because what is it telling you? That all of God's word, his revelation, all of that, uh, in, in, in terms of the history of redemption, was all rooted in Israel's history, right? It's incredible. Uh, God did not choose to, back in the ancient patriarchal, let's say go back to the time of the patriarchs, God did not choose to go give his revelation to the people living in the Americas. Uh, he didn't do that. He gave his revelation, supernatural revelation to the people of Israel. Now, don't get me wrong. Everyone has general revelation, right? Conscience and creation. But outside of the saving revelation of God, only Israel was privy to that. That's why Paul can make such a sweeping statement about all Gentiles, that we were without God, without hope. We were in the world, and therefore, 
we had no access to God's saving benefits. Um, any questions, comments, statements, anything? Yes, sir. Yeah, why did I even... Right. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, and, and if we notice there, Paul includes himself in that number, right, as someone who was dead in trespasses and sins. Right, exactly, exactly. So, yes, sir? Make me think of something that I was thinking also last week in regards to God knowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, again, it's underscoring that this is just for his people. Right. They have a unique relationship with his people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's amazing. But here's the reality of it, that in Ephesians, what Paul is stressing is not so much our exclusion, but our inclusion, right? That's the whole thrust of it, is that we have gone from a place of total alienation now to total participation, now we, because of our union with Christ, now we are part of God's covenant promises. Now look with me back to Ephesians 2. Let's keep going, verse 19. Just jump down a little bit. Okay, beginning of verse 19, listen to what it says here. It says, so then you are no longer, so now we have a reversal that has taken place, right? You are no longer strangers and aliens but you are now fellow citizens see the idea of citizenship going back to that commonwealth idea right that you guys make that connection right there's the commonwealth and now the citizenship it says with the saints and i like that with the saints as opposed to in the world right it's just a, a beautiful um parallel here he says and are of god's household Oh, that's great because what this means is now we are recipients of God's privileges. So let me say this. What does it mean for us to participate covenantally with God? I would say first we have the privileges, right? Um, yeah, we have privileges that are now ours because we are uh, covenantally united to Christ and to his people. And that's what we're looking at right here. Look at verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, um, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, verse 20, very interesting now. Uh, maybe you could you can look into this a bit yourself, but notice the order, foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, you would expect if Paul was thinking Old Testament prophets that he would have said built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, right? But he doesn't do that. He says apostles and prophets. And so most uh, commentators conclude that what Paul is talking about here in reference to the New Covenant Church is that it's built upon the the New Testament prophets, not the Old Testament prophets. Uh, That's the majority of the view there. Listen, uh, let's just keep going. He says Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole body being, uh, uh, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place or a dwelling of God in the Spirit. I mean, this is just, whew, 
magnificent uh, stuff going on here, right? Um, notice what Paul has done. Uh, you know, we went from a place of total alienation to now being identified with such metaphorical language that now those who were once outside in the world of the profane now are being described as what? The dwelling of God in the spirit. Amazing. And then he says here also that we are uh, a whole building growing into a holy temple in the Lord. <laughs> this is amazing, right? Because this is a total reversal. We went from the world of the profane now to being ourselves identified as God's temple where his holy presence dwells. I mean, it, I mean, it's just remarkable. Any thoughts or comments on that? Anybody? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Like he's already transitioning here, right, by calling us saints. Mm-hmm. It's already getting to that holy language that would be like a set apart language. And uh-huh. it's an ongoing aspect of it, how we're, how yeah. we're being built together, growing. Yep. All of that's like a process, and that process of sanctification. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's why that's my next thing. The next thing is not only uh, do we have the privileges of being in covenant with God, but that results to a call to holiness now turn with me to ephesians chapter uh chapter four uh, because you see remember we're saying uh, the reality is this the reality is that we are what's the reality right what is the indicative right and what is the imperative that's how that's how that's how ephesians is built the whole book of Ephesians is built like this. So what's the indicative? We are what? We are a temple to the Lord. We are holy, right? We are holy ones. We are saints. So what is the indicative? The indicative is what is. The indicative is the mood, grammatically speaking, of reality. This is the reality. You are this. And what is the imperative mood? What ought to be, right? So he goes from what is to what ought to be in the book of Ephesians. And once he establishes, look, we are God's house. We are God's saints. We are a temple, holy temple to the Lord, right? Or in the Lord. What does that result in? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 17 says, So I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you no longer... Just uh, should walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So here's a question for you guys. Um, so he's talking. So, so, so who is he talking to in Ephesus? Gentiles or Jews? Gentiles. So then how is it that now he says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk? I thought they were Gentiles. It's not a trick question. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> right? So isn't that amazing? So what has happened here? Yes, sir. Yeah. 
That's right. But if they are Gentiles, ethnically speaking, how can he say, hey, you Gentiles don't walk like the Gentiles? Huh? Yes, sir. That's right. He's he's viewing them. Say that again loud for the speakers so they can hear you. That's right. Now, because they are in covenant with God, they are no longer part of the Gentile world. Isn't that amazing? Even though ethnically they are Gentiles. So really, what is, in a sense, right? Paul's doing a play on words here where in a sense, he's he's identifying these Gentile Christians as Jews. So what has happened is the very word Gentile, right? This term is an operative theological word now in the New Testament where basically it is the same or it means the same as an unbeliever. Right? That's what it means. Gentile has taken on the connotation now, no longer simply referring to ethnic racial distinctions. Now it's if you're a Gentile, you are spiritually distinguished from the people of God. Right? It's really a fascinating move. Uh, really a fascinating idea. Um, but look at what he says. He says, don't walk as a gent in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Well, right. What does that remind you? Re- excluded from the life of God. What does that remind you? Of? What verse? <coughs> right. That we just read in chapter two. Excluded from the life of God. Where he says what now? Yeah, keep going. Somebody want to read it? Remember that you were at that same time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Without God. So here he says it again, excluded from the life of God. That's incredible. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, no, notice that, my dear friends. Uh, our Our common vernacular today could get us in trouble this is why it's so important that when you're studying the bible you do proper word study right not simply english word study right because if we say well someone's ignorant right it it may get you off the hook right but in the bible ignorance is not a virtue and ignorance is not innocence Ignorance is actually the demonstration of your depravity, <laughs> right? It's it's not a it's not a virtue. It doesn't get you off the hook because you're ignorant. It's just saying all the more it's worse, right? That you are so ignorant. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> you won't find that in the Bible. Or ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is darkness. Right? That's what he's saying. Look, because look, it is so connected to the futility of the mind. Dark. See that? Darkened in their understanding. Ignorance. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart. You see that? Look at that. It just kind of builds, right? Because of the hardness of heart. It's a spiritual issue. It's not simply that people lack information is that they lack a new heart. That's why they're in darkness. That's why their mind is futile. Um, let's see here. What else does it say? And they, having become callous 
Wow, look at the progression there. They have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. It's like they can't get enough impurity. Uh, That's what life outside of the covenant is like. So it's the total antithesis to holiness, right? What is holiness? Holiness is the pursuit of, of, of God's glory. It's the pursuit of, of, of God's law, of God's standards, right? It's the pursuit of Christ likeness. That's what holiness is, right? And, 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 and conversely with the world, it is the pursuit of impurity. Right? That's what everyone is pursuing. Everyone at all times, everywhere, well maybe not at all times. I went to, I went from total depravity to utter depravity. So, so maybe not at all times, but every part and every human being has this outside of Christ. A pursuit of impurity. Because it says with greediness, right? It's almost like it's an insatiable hunger for, for what is impure. Wow. Mind blowing. Um, and, and this goes back to the fact that we have been brought into covenant participation. Maybe some correlating passages with this. Look with me, um, look with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Keith, do you have something? 1 Peter chapter 1. I was, was going to give a, a scripture also that ties in with yeah. And what's remarkable there, that's First Corinthians chapter 3, right? What is it? 3.16. So there, what's remarkable about that passage there is that, is that when it says, when it's highlighting how holy the people of God are to be, the context is doctrine. The context is either a good or bad gospel. Wow, what does that tell us about the purity of the church, right? I mean, <laughs> it has everything to do with theology you know it's really important any any th- observations any questions anything i know you, i've got a lot of people thinking in here yes sir yeah Very good. Yeah. Right. Well, that's good. I would actually ask you to read uh, uh, John chapter one, verse twelve and thirteen for us. Kind of goes along with what you're saying there, right? I think John makes it explicit. Yeah. That's right. Not of the not of blood. That's referring to your ancestry, right? Not of the will of the flesh. That is talking about um, human reproduction, and not of the will of man. That's talking about a person's volitional powers, right? It's not that you can you can morally reform yourself. Something that's I mean, we're surrounded by that, right? People that are trying to reform themselves as children of God. Right. Typically, you find people. We're all children of God. 
And haven't we heard that, right? I hear that like all the time, but right? And, and, and what is John saying is none of those things, right? So he, elim- one by one, he just eliminates the possibility for those categories as, but God, right? You have to have, like you said, be born again, right? Incredible. First uh, Peter chapter one, uh, verse 14, kind of similar ideas here, really. Um, Peter calls us to the same type of obedience and holiness. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the, to the former lusts which were your in your ignorance. See, there's that pejorative use of ignorance again. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because, watch this now, as it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, where is that coming from? Right? In the NA, this is why I love the NASB. If you don't have an NASB, it may be a little bit more challenging, but mine, my Bible, the reason why I love the NASB is because all Old Testament quotations or citations are in all caps. You see that? Uh, if you have an ESV, then all you have is quotations, right? So a lot of times that's okay because if the ESV is going to, like let's say you got a paragraph, right? And its paragraph looks like this. Then you get an Old Testament quotation that's kind of inside, you know, then the broader paragraph, right? And when you have a little Old Testament quotation, then it'll put it in quotes, right? The problem is, is that when you're in a long paragraph that's all the same, it's just not as easy to cite where those little quotes are telling you there's an Old Testament quote in there. Right. But me, like while I'm preaching, if I look down and I see all caps, I know that's Old Testament, baby. <laughs> and, and it's good because it helps me to, you know, get my bearing straight where I'm at. So that verse right there, 16, that's a quote from Leviticus. Right. He's quoting Leviticus uh, 11. So look at that. Uh, who says the whole Bible is not relevant to us anymore? Right. Uh, far from that. Right, so what's the imperative then? Holiness. Right? That's the imperative that we're looking at, at least there. So he's quoting out of Leviticus to show people that are in the new covenant how to live in covenant participation with God and with his people. Um, Keith, I had that same exact verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, here as well, that we're a holy temple. Look at uh, 1 Peter 2, 9. I know you know these verses. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's so glorious about that verse right there, First Peter 2, 9, is that um, that is explicitly covenantal language. Because you are dealing here with the, the the people of Israel. And now, what's going on here? You guys help me with this. What's going on in verse 9? How is it that Peter is now addressing Christians with these titles? Okay. Doesn't that kind of like, okay, does, is it just because we're kind of like similar to Israel? What's the deal? Jonathan, is your wife still listening to you? I bet she's so, so happy to be sitting next to you right there. Yeah. 
Man, we have entered the digital age. <laughs> God bless her for her zeal. So how is it possible? Let me ask the question again. How is it possible, though, Jonathan, that 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 Peter is now using this language for Christians, Gentiles, and Jews together? I mean, this is this is language reserved for the nation Israel, where it says, "You are a chosen race." Chris, I see your hand back there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have a question or comment? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, we, when we read our Bibles and you're a Christian and you're sitting there reading First Peter, and then you see that you are being called titles. I mean, these are specific titles that specifically had to do with with the nation Israel, a people for God's own possession. I mean, that that directly um, in the Old Testament, I mean, that goes directly back to what? Where's that going back to? Do you know? I have a I have a reference here going back to Exodus 19, right? That God there in Exodus 19 called them a people for His own possession. Yes, sir. <laughs> Go ahead. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, every single one of these, you know, it says a, a children ra- race, a royal a priesthood. Here, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5, uh, just quickly. I think this is important enough because it really affects your interpretation of the Bible. I mean, how you interpret Scripture, right? I mean, this is a, this is a big one. Um, Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. So what it says here, and they sa- I'll give you a minute to get there. Revelation 5, 9, it says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Revelation 5, 9. And he says, <clears throat> To break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. This is talking to Jesus. 
men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And watch this. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. What is so marvelous about that, okay, is that that quote right there, just like um, just like the one in Peter, both of those passages of Scripture are going back to Exodus chapter 19. And you should have this memorized because of biblical theology. I quoted this so much. Exodus 19, well, here it's 5 and 6. Right? I quoted Exodus 19.6 over and over and over and over again. And you better not forget it because it is it is everything, right? This is our all right here. Uh, look at verses 5 through 6. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's where Peter's getting it. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So what's going on there, right? Is that Peter and John, because Revelation, John, right? Peter and John, both of them are using Exodus 19, verse 6, 5 and 6, to refer to the new covenant Christian. So that you and I, brothers and sisters, whether you are Jewish blood or not, you and I are God's chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are a kingdom of priests to our God. Marvelous. Simply marvelous. Uh, it's exactly what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 30. When he says he's going to do all this and he says in the last days, you will understand this. So when Christ came and accomplished redemption, guess what? Now we understand how God's going to do it. <laughs> right. Any thoughts, questions, comments, anything? Yes, sir. Mm. Mm. Amen. Uh, I want to stress two more things based on our covenant participation with God. Not only do we have covenant privileges, full privileges and a call to holiness, but two more things. We are also granted assurance. Y'all read that. And what's the other one? Unity. Unity. Now, I say assurance because... Outside of our covenant participation with God, we have no assurance. We already saw that, right? Verses, what was that? Uh, 12 through 13. No assurance whatsoever. But then we saw uh, verses uh, 19 to 22. We saw that all of that reverses, remember? It says, no longer are you strangers. But then he goes on and on and on to talk about the glorious assurance of the things that we now have because we are now in covenant participation with God. It's remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Um, let's talk about let's talk about that. Let me read something to you guys.
And this is uh, Peter O'Brien's commentary um, on on uh, on on Ephesians. Uh, if you want a really, really good commentary on the book of Ephesians, you cannot be without this commentary by Peter O'Brien. I think it is one of the finest that has ever been written. But listen to what he says. Just as Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, had reminded these Gentile Christians, re- these Gentile Christian readers of the great change that had been brought about in their, in their situation, so here too, their privileged position as members of God's new community should encourage an attitude of profound thankfulness to God and a willingness on their part to accept the, in, in, uh, the entailments of their new creation in Christ. So in other words, their union with Christ. They have been reminded that in consequence of Christ reconciling them to God and to Jewish believers in the one new humanity, they have become intimate members of God's household and have a privileged position in his building and temple where God dwells by his spirit. So these are the things that we have assurance of. We have assurance that we are part of a new humanity. We have assurance that we are now members of God's house. That's what I mean by assurance. Um, And then last of all, our unity. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 4 just to see like, okay, we, we know we have unity, right? Um, actually, I'm sorry, go to Ephesians 2, 19, excuse me, 14, 14 through 19. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. We've got a couple minutes here. Just to establish the unity, right, that we have with each other. Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself is our peace. That's how all unity in the church happens right there. We all have Christ as our peace, right? What should that result in? Peace in the church. That's why so much division in the church, not good. Seeing that Christ is our peace. Who made both groups, that's Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. No longer can Jewish believers say Gentiles are dogs and unclean. Now they are all one. And it says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. That's the new humanity that uh, Peter O'Brien was talking about. He says, therefore establishing peace, and he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. You see that? I love that. That evangelical thrust. How does this all happen? Through the cross. See that? The cross is everything. I just wrote a book on it. Getting ready to publish it. Hopefully you'll have it in your hand by Christmas. It says, By it having put to death the enmity, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, far off, far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Then he goes on to say we're no longer strangers. Now, turn to chapter 4, verse 1. Why should we strive? You know, the Bible says, strive for the unity of the faith, right? And I got to tell you, obviously, as a pastor, this is a huge deal. This is a huge concern, is that the members of Heritage Grace are striving for the unity of the faith. 
right? That we highlight, that we emphasize among each other where in which we can agree, where in which we can be united. Not that we all have the same conviction on every little thing. Okay, I, I got a Christmas tree at my house. I did. We had to throw it away. I just remembered I got rid of it today because my Christmas tree, maybe this is God's judgment, I don't know, but <laughs> my, my Christmas, anyway, that's a friendly debate, but anyway, my Christmas tree was splitting in half. It's just splitting in half. I had, this morning I had to undo it, take it out and take it back to Costco and say, hey, give me my money back. <laughs> By the way, when I got there, guess, <laughs> maybe Mike Stockwell was right. Anyway. Uh, no, Peter Hammond actually really good on Christmas and Christianity. Anyway, um, but but I, anyway, the Costco analogy is failing right now. Uh, oh no, yes, I went to Costco and when I took it back, I went back into the tree truck and guess what? All the trees were splitting at the base and splitting all the way up the tree. So the manager had to come out and, and all of that. And I'm thinking about how am I going to tie this back into. Okay, we can't, like the tree, we cannot split. <laughs> we can't have divisions, okay? We gotta stick together. Keep the trunk, keep the trunk together. That's actually a good analogy because we are called the trunk of salvation, you know, but, uh, <laughs> um, okay, last verse. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1. Uh, again, just stressing this unity. It's amazing because this whole practical theology section that we're gonna study begins right here, chapter 4. And look at what it begins with. It begins with this, unity. And he says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Notice that unity is unity is in, in keeping with walking worthy of our calling. Wow, that's, that's the implications of this. I mean, it's just amazing. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance to one another in love. Isn't that amazing? tolerating one another right i like christmas trees i don't okay that's right man and we tolerate each other you know i'm not going to invite you over to come decorate my christmas tree and don't call me over to participate in your humbug christmas you know what i mean (laughs) we tolerate each other (laughs) right what does it say it says for uh, in love i mean that's the operative christian virtue being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and that's amazing to me. You know, to me, that's really nowadays the mark of a true mature believer. I mean, the older I get, I mean, it's, you know, maybe I'm getting soft or whatever, but, you know, er, young, early on in my, my, my theological career, you know, I, I would shed a lot of theological bloodshed, you know, um, uh, and I would just, you don't agree with me on this, off with your head, you know, out came, <laughs> out came you know, a Greek verb or something, you know. But nowadays, I mean, I have really tried, uh, and I really try, you know, I'm not talking about bad doctrine. I'm talking about tertiary issues where we don't agree, you know, uh, that we can differ on. To just overlook those things for the sake of unity, I mean, that's really mature. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it takes a lot of, you know, maturity to do that with one another. Just to tolerate each other, you know, not to, not to try to stress those areas where we disagree so that we end up getting in a spat over something you know what i mean it causes a big division and a big stir i don't know last last i'll give you guys the the last word what do you think about that yeah yeah yes sir chris i saw that hand 
thinking of uh, so many squirrels uh, as well as Cuban squirrels, uh, but specifically Roman squirrels. <coughs> it talks about uh, as far as it is up to you, uh, be at peace with all men, Roman squirrel 18. If possible, so far as it can, depends on you, be at peace with all men. Yeah. Especially your brothers yeah. and your sisters. Well, I would say, too, like if you're joining a church, you know what I mean? Like I know for me, I'm gonna, when I left, you know, Trish and I left our old denomination, you know, I, I look for a church where theologically I could, by and large, get along and agree. You know, I remember I was on a phone call with one pastor probably over an hour just going through different theological things because, you know, I don't want to get there and then find out oh, I have all these disagreements and then they come out later. You know what I mean? I'd rather find out, am I unified enough on the on the most important things with this group, with this church? And if so, then, hey, man, you know, all the other stuff, timing of the rapture, you know, all that stuff, whatever, you know. We can have a, go out to coffee, you know. But on this big stuff, you know what I mean? Like, we have to be unified, you know what I'm saying? Because here's the deal. It's not just, oh, I found out there's enough unity. I can go to church here, right? That's not the calling, the calling is much more than that. The calling is to strive for unity, to to pursue unity in the church. You know what I mean? And we, if we can't do that with a clear conscience and with a pure heart, then I think we're gonna our unity, our fellowship is gonna suffer. You know. Anybody else got anything? <clears throat> 